a year and a half ago, I stood about right here on this stage, and I was married to my now wife, Madison. And over the past year and a half, things have been good. It hasn't always been easy, but you know, we work together to grow and to learn. And a couple of weeks ago, we're sitting on our couch, we were watching something on Netflix, and she turns to me and she says, is it hard to love me? Now, for the men that'll be in the room on Sunday, or if you're watching this online, I've learned that there is no chance of winning when your wife asks you this question. And I learned that because I tried to answer the question. I said something along the lines of, and I did verify this with her, sometimes it's easy, sometimes it's hard, but no matter how hard it gets, I'm committed to you, I love you, and that will never change. You know, picturing everyone at home, aw, he's so cute, so romantic, right? Sometimes it's easy, sometimes it's hard, but no matter how hard it gets, I'm committed to you, I love you, and that will never change. I thought it was a pretty good answer, but it turns out it's not. You see, my wife had played a bit of a trick on me in asking this question, because there is no right answer. If I had said, yes, loving you is easy, it's the great joy of my life, the response might be, well, are you willing to work at it? What's going to happen when things get hard, when life throws challenges at us? And if I had responded the other way, that yes, loving you is hard, but I'm willing to put in the work, the response might have been something on the lines of, well, love should be easy, or it shouldn't be a chore. And at this point in the message, I'm painting my wife in a bit of a negative light, and I'm sure I'll hear about it when this is over. I've probably dug myself into a much bigger hole than what we had from this initial conversation. But the truth remains that if your wife asks you, is it easy to love me? The only correct response is to shut your mouth and to wait. So the men in the room and those that are online, you can write that down. This is your first application point for today. Sometimes you just need to shut your mouth. You know, marriage is a lot of work. We both knew going into our, our wedding and into our marriage that it was going to be a lot of work. Um, but even then, we may have been a little naive as to how much work it would be. Those of you that have been married a long time are probably agreeing with me or have some understanding of what I'm saying. Right? Marriage is incredibly hard. And it's not just because of my wife's high expectations of me. It's because I cannot be the husband that I want to be. And in this world, it is a constant struggle to remain loyal and committed and fully engaged to her and to not be distracted by the things of this world that would pull me away. It's a constant struggle between my desire to love my wife and my self-centered, me-focused spirit that I need to control. And a healthy marriage should be both easy and hard. It takes love and intimacy, but it also takes commitment and work. And in this balance of work and effort and love and intimacy, we see this beautiful picture of a marriage. The same picture that is presented to us in Revelation chapter 19. Right in Revelation 19, we see this powerful picture of God's love and intimacy and of his pursuit of us, the church. We see the relationship that we have with him, but also we see the things that would pull us away from living in a perfect relationship with him. And it's into that image that we're going to dive 
today. If you could turn with me to Revelation chapter 19, if you have a paper Bible, it's going to be almost at the end of the book. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, you can get an excellent Bible app on your smartphone by going to Bible.com. And let's read Revelation 19, 1 to 9 together. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, hallelujah. And from the voice came a throne, or from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. In this passage, we have the great multitude in heaven praising God for defeating the prostitute Babylon. And in the fourth rendition of Hallelujah, we are introduced to this picture of a marriage feast. This marriage feast is the figurative light at the end of the tunnel for the book of Revelation. And as we come to this passage, we need to ask ourselves two questions. Number one, what does fallen Babylon have to do with the marriage supper of the Lamb? And number two, more importantly, how does this passage call me to live as I look towards the marriage supper of the Lamb? What does fallen Babylon have to do with the marriage supper of the Lamb? And how does this passage call me to live as I look towards it? After this, I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. After this, we've seen this phrase after this a handful of times throughout the book of Revelation. And while it doesn't give us a specific date or time for these events to occur, we do see that there is a chronology to the events that are happening, right? This fourfold hallelujah comes after and in response to the fall of Babylon that we talked about in Revelation 17 and 18. Many of you are likely familiar with Handel's Messiah and the famous Hallelujah Chorus. And I haven't had the opportunity to hear it live, but I have heard it on a sound system similar to what we have in this auditorium, as a loud and full sound. It is this loud, full, all-encompassing multitude of voices in unison singing, Hallelujah, Hallelujah, Hallelujah. And I'll leave the singing to our more talented team members. But this passage in Revelation goes beyond that. It is the heavenly hallelujah chorus. These are the voices of the nations together declaring that salvation, glory, and power 
belong to our God. Many of you have probably heard the term hallelujah before. Uh, in some ways, it may be a bit cultural, uh, both in the church and outside of it. Uh, you may know it from, as we just mentioned, the Hallelujah Chorus in Handel's Messiah. You may know it from Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah. Other bands more recently have used songs using this term as well. You may know it from songs we sing on a Sunday morning, like the song Raise a Hallelujah. But what I had not realized until I was researching this passage is that Hallelujah only appears in the New Testament a total of four times. All four times in this passage. And hallelujah comes from a Hebrew term meaning praise Yah. Yah being a shortened form of Yahweh. We see the word hallelujah in the Old Testament in a group of songs known as the Halal Psalms, which are commemorative psalms um, worshiping God for his deliverance of Israel from Egypt uh, that we see in Exodus. Right, hallelujah was a way to ascribe specific praise to Yahweh, to the God of Israel, for his deliverance. And so in this passage, we parallel the Halal Psalms by offering praise to Yahweh. We sing hallelujah for the deliverance that God has given us over Babylon. We praise him for salvation, glory, and power belong to him. And as we return to our passage, the hallelujah chorus continues. And we see more in depth the reasons that we praise God. Picking up in verse 2, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. God's judgment is true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute. As we talked about last week, Revelation 17, 5, it says, On her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. The great prostitute Babylon is judged for two reasons. One, she has corrupted the earth with her immorality. And throughout Revelation, we've seen numerous references to the corrupting influence of Babylon. Uh, if you'd like to look them up, Revelation 14, 8, 17, 2, and 18, 3 speak of this. She's also judged for shedding the blood of the saints. And we can see in Revelation 16.6, 17.6, and 18.24. And this judgment was more fully laid out in Revelation 17 and 18. This hallelujah chorus is merely the heavenly response to the events from those preceding chapters. Right, the second hallelujah comes in verse 3. Once more they cried out, hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Babylon's smoke goes up forever and ever. This is a symbol of irreversible judgment, eternal judgment, a judgment that can only be understood in light of the pervasive evil of the great prostitute and of the infinite worthiness of the God that she has repeatedly come against. Moving into verse 4 and 5, it says, And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. These 24 elders and these four creatures were introduced to us back in Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5. 
And in that passage, they're seated around the throne, offering praises to God. They declared God's worthiness, and they fell down and they worshipped him. And with this verse, we are given a command from the throne, all you servants, praise God. All you servants, small and great. Right? In the first three verses, we had the multitude in heaven singing out praises to God. And now the heavenly court of elders and the four living creatures have joined in. Right? When it speaks of all those small and great, it means everybody. All those who are servants of God. All those who fear God. Everybody can praise God. And some people have commented before that it, it doesn't seem like a very Christian response to worship and praise over judgment and destruction. Uh, some Christian groups throughout history have used this idea of culture being destroyed to be anti-culture, to be removed from culture, or just to be antagonistic to the people that are around them, rather than to participate in culture and to seek to redeem cultural norms and redeem the people that are around us. See, ultimately, Babylon will fall. Judgment will be wrought. But the glory of the fall of Babylon is not in judgment. The glory of the fall of Babylon is that everything that pulls me away from Christ, everything that distracts me from God, is eliminated. I have a lot of hobbies. I play drums. Uh, I'm a hobby photographer. I enjoy doing video work and videography. I play video games. I like board games. I've got a bit of a collection. The, the list of things goes on and on. You know, a number of months ago, as a staff development exercise, uh, we did a personality assessment called the Grip Berkman. Uh, and I scored in the 99th percentile for a category they called restlessness, meaning that I love to jump from one thing to the next, to the next, and to the next again. And one of the problems with having a lot of hobbies is it's hard to make time for all of them. And with a number of my hobbies, specifically drumming and recording and photography, uh, it can also be hard to fund all of them. You know, when I want a new piece of drum gear, say a cymbal, a snare drum or something like that, it's something I have to save up for. And it's really hard to stay focused on that when I also see, oh, a new zoom lens a new camera body. There's so many new things that come out. Right? If I were to eliminate the vast majority of my hobbies and interests and focus on one hobby, both my money and the gear that I could have for it, as well as the time and my skill development that would come from that, would probably be exponentially more focused. You know, I'd be a much better photographer if it was the only thing I did. And I'm not here to say that having more than one hobby is bad, but the idea behind it is that there is a tension when we are pulled in multiple directions. In the same way, there is a tension in our spiritual lives when we are pulled away from Christ. And when Babylon falls, the things that pull us away, the temptations, the distractions, the detours, and the disruptions will all fall away. Right? Dealing with Babylon is not vindictiveness. It is actually just the final preparation for those who have remained loyal. The fall of Babylon is a relief for us who have tried again and again and again, but continually find ourselves falling short of the glory of God. The fall of Babylon brings me to a place 
where there's only one object for my affections. And some people would take a passage like this and project that God is a lover of judgment, but he is actually a lover of intimacy. And that love is demonstrated in the elimination of everything that would draw me away from him. As Christians, we often get caught up in our sins. We work and we work and we work to eliminate our desires, to get them under control. We seek accountability. We get prayer. But we can never get rid of, as Mel talked about last week, the Babylon factor in our lives. But it is here, with the elimination of Babylon, that we are fully prepared to be unified with Christ. It is only after the Babylon factor is gone that we can move into the marriage supper. Only after everything that would pull me away is gone that we can experience true intimacy and union with Christ. Revelation 19, 6 to 8 says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of the mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And it is here that we move into the second part of our passage. Now that Babylon has been eliminated, Babylon has been defeated, Babylon has fallen, we see the final marriage supper. The grand celebration that marks the beginning of the end for the book of Revelation. And it's here that we have the fourth and final hallelujah of the chapter. The first three hallelujahs that were raised were looking backwards. They praised God for the destruction of Babylon, but in this fourth hallelujah, as the voices of heaven, as the voices of God's servants, great and small worship together, we begin to look forward to something new. Hallelujah. Praise Yahweh. For our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride, the church, has made herself ready. The church is now prepared for this union. She has both made herself ready and has been granted fine linen, bright and pure. The picture here is a bride on her wedding day. She is prepared for this, and there is a fine dress waiting. And there are many biblical metaphors that use this picture of a wedding or of a marriage to describe the relationship between Christ and the church. Uh, perhaps the greatest example comes out of Ephesians 5. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. The parallel imagery here is incredible. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. 
to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain, without wrinkle, or without any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Right, This picture of a radiant bride, pure and blameless in Ephesians 5, is the same picture as this prepared bride dressed in fine linens, bright and pure, from Revelation 19. And in some ways, there's a tension in these verses. Uh, on one hand, the bride has prepared herself, uh, and on the other, the fine linens were given to her. Right, questions of, do we prepare ourselves for this, uh, this day, or does God do something in us to prepare us for this day? Daryl Johnson, who we've uh, cited a number of times over this, uh, this series, commenting on this passage, says to this tension, it is the same tension found in Philippians 2, 12 to 13. So then, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in both will and to work for his good pleasure. As Daniel Fuller responded when asked of this text, who's doing the work? We disciples or Jesus? The answer is yes, both. We cannot work out our salvation apart from God. But as God begins to work in us, we are empowered to live a new life. We are empowered to prepare ourselves. To gain a deeper understanding of the imagery used in both Ephesians and in Revelation 19, uh, we actually need to get a better understanding of historical Jewish marriage customs. It's exciting stuff. right? In our day and age, there's generally three steps towards marriage. Right, there's an engagement where a couple commits to getting married. There's preparation for the wedding. Uh, and then there's a wedding ceremony, at which point the couple is married. In Jewish customs, it's a similar process, but there's a few key differences that make this picture of the wedding supper infinitely more powerful. Right, in the ancient Hebrew marriage process, it was two distinct events with a waiting period in between. Uh, at the start, there was the engagement, uh, or more properly, the betrothal. And then there was the wedding supper itself. And in between these two events, there's a period of waiting that would last approximately 12 months. So it begins with the betrothal, where the prospective groom and his best man would travel to the prospective bride's house. He would negotiate with the bride's father and agree upon a bride price. And as soon as this price had been agreed upon and it was paid, then a marriage contract was in effect. Uh, the bride and the groom were covenanted together. And so during this time after the, the betrothal, if the groom were to pass, the bride would be considered a widow. And to break the contract at this time would be similar to getting a divorce. And so after the betrothal, the groom would return home and he would prepare a place for the bride. Uh, generally, this meant he would build an addition onto his father's house. He would add a room for him and the bride to live in. Uh, the bride likely would prepare herself for the wedding. And once the bridegroom had prepared a place for the bride, he would return to the bride's house to retrieve her. And this would mark the beginning of the wedding feast. It's the supper that marked the completion of waiting. It's the supper that marked the end of the preparation. And when we look at this passage, we see that this picture is not just that of a wedding ceremony, as we might think of it, but we see that the whole book 
of Revelation has been preparation for the wedding supper. The whole book of Revelation has been preparation for a final celebration and a unification between the bride, the church, and the bridegroom, Jesus Christ. Continuing the parallel of this marriage custom, uh, Jesus has paid the bride price for us in his death. He has gone and ascended to heaven, and he will return to bring us into full and final relationship with him. Jesus, speaking in John 14, 1 to 3, said, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. I will go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come back and take you to be with me. Powerful stuff. Right? This is the exact picture as in Revelation. And it's a powerful picture of the nature of God's love for us. God loved us so much that he sent his son to die to pay the price of being in a relationship with us. You are loved by a God who gave up himself in pursuit of you. It's also a picture that gives us incredible sense of security. This engagement, this betrothal, and this commitment is not a picture of a fleeting love, or a crush, it is a picture of a covenanted love, right? And Jesus has committed himself to us, not only in paying the price, but in going to his father's house to prepare a place for us, right? Jesus has committed to coming back and taking us to that future home. The last verse we'll talk about today is Revelation 19, 9. It says, and the angel said to me, Write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. As we begin to wrap up this section, this verse blends a couple of images together, uh, both imagery from this section of Revelation, but also throughout the book. Right in this verse, Jesus is both the groom prepared for the wedding, but he is also the Lamb who paid the price for us. The church likewise is reflected twice here. We are both the bride that is united with the bridegroom. We are also the guests that are invited. If you are here today, if you're watching this today, you are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Right? We live in a time of preparation before the ultimate return of Jesus. And Jesus has invited us to prepare for his return but he has already come and paid the price to have a relationship with us, to have a relationship with you. He has paid the price to save us from the powers of sin and death. If you're joining us today online, or if you're joining us on site, and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, one of our staff would love to connect with you, either online, you can email us, or in the chat. Uh, Or after the service, you can find one of our staff and talk about what it means to have a relationship with Jesus and how you can begin that relationship today. But if we remember back to the beginning of our time together, I said there was two questions that we needed to answer as we came to this passage. 
Number one, what does fallen Babylon have to do with the marriage supper of the Lamb? And number two, how does this passage call me to live as I look toward the marriage supper of the Lamb? How does it call us to live as we look towards the marriage supper of the Lamb? Well, we'll start with that first one. What does fallen Babylon have to do with the marriage supper of the Lamb? Why are these two images put together in the book of Revelation? Well, everything has to do. It's a unified picture, right? The fall of Babylon eliminates all the things that pull me away from Christ. And it is only through the destruction of Babylon that we are fully prepared for the marriage supper. A term often used in Christian circles to describe our current time period in a spiritual and cosmic sense is uh, the already not yet. Jesus has already come, but he has not yet come in full. Jesus has defeated death already, but not yet in full. The great beasts we talked about earlier in the book of Revelation are coming against us, but their response is only the death throes of a dying and defeated beast already defeated, but not yet dead. Jesus has come and died and paid the price already, but he has not yet come to take us to the place that he is preparing. So how does this passage to call, how does this passage call us to live as we look towards this marriage supper? We are the bridegroom. And it is at this moment that we prepare ourselves for the groom's eventual return and for the wedding feast. It means that the primary issue in our discipleship is fidelity. It means that our sin is not just actions. Our sin is not merely sin, but it is actually adultery. It is a rejection of the relationship that we've joined into. Sin is the pursuit of another lover. It is the pursuit of Babylon. And the call in our lives to be loyal and committed is the call of a bride to love her groom, right? We need to identify the pulls and the temptations that are in our lives. We need to work out our salvation by resisting the pulls of Babylon until its ultimate defeat. We need to evaluate things like our time. What relationships are we investing in? What things are we doing in the day? Are our actions honoring to God? Are we fighting against the pulls of Babylon and the things that would take us away? Have we made time for God in our day? Are we not only focused on removing ourselves from Babylon, but also spending time building intimacy with the God who loves us? A line I've heard a number of times is, show me someone's bank account and their schedule and I'll tell you their priorities. So not only do we need to look at our time, but also our money. What things do we spend on? Where is our money going? Are we being good stewards of the things God has given us? Are we living generous lives? Are we giving? Or are we so focused on ourselves and the things that bring us glory and power that we forget to give back to God? Do we have idols in our lives? Are there things that we are putting above God? Are there things that we are seeking for ourselves apart from Him? Are we seeking security in our own actions rather than in God? Do we have addictions to sin and to pleasure that we cannot control, right? Do we have desires that override us and move us to act in ways that do not honor God? Each one of us experiences the pull of Babylon in different ways, 
but we are called to prepare for the wedding feast. We are called to prepare ourselves for the day when we will be united with Jesus. We worship because God has defeated everything that pulls us away from an intimate relationship with him. And we worship because one day we will be fully united with him. Let's pray together. God, you are great and mighty and worthy to be praised. We thank you that you have paid the full price to buy us. We thank you that you have gone to prepare a place for us. We thank you that one day everything that pulls us away from you will be eliminated. As we live our lives today, we ask that you help each of us to prepare for that day. Help us to see the sin patterns and the idols that we have in our lives. Empower us to continue to deal with the pull of Babylon. It's in us. Give each of us a heart of fidelity that we would only be in love with you. And give each of us a heart of anticipation as we look forward to the day when we will be united with you. Amen.